Sometimes, the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. And once again, welcome to the back of the range. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 178. I hope everyone's having a good week. I spent some time on Monday shooting some photos at the first minor league golf tour major of the year at the Country Club of Coral Springs here in South Florida. Scott Turner's a good friend, does a great job running that tour. He was my guest on episode 51. This tour provides a great place for guys working their way back to the PGA Tour to get some competition or for, you know, players like Tyler Strafacci, who played as an amateur, they're yet to make the move to the professional ranks. Still gives them a great opportunity to sharpen their game. You know, he's got a little tournament in Augusta and then this team match in Seminole to tend to before making the jump. But some pretty notable names in the field. But the winner was David Sanders after a two-day total of 126. Yes, add that up. That's 64-62. You are hearing that correctly. Now, as you can imagine, there are some incredible players on this tour with stories just as captivating as their games. So don't be surprised if you see some of them as guests on the back of the range throughout the year. Remember, episode 250 is the goal for December 31st, 2021. So got to keep the hammer down and I got to get some more stories and more guests out to you this year. Housekeeping items, um, not too many. Still got some merch available, got the hats and the towels. All that stuff is available at the website, thebackoftherange.com. Uh, make sure you're following along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, especially Instagram. Might have an announcement next week. Got something in the got something in the works. You're gonna like it. Keep sending me feedback. If there's someone that you want on the podcast, let me know. I will do my very best to make it happen. As for this week, my guest on this episode is Andy Pope. Now, last year's U.S. Open at Wingfoot, as many of you will remember, was won by Bryson DeChambeau. Hard to forget that, but what you might have forgotten, well, probably not. You guys are all locked in right now. You know that there was no local or sectional qualifying at the U.S. Open. The USGA, because of coronavirus, just couldn't hold qualifiers all over the country. So the U.S. Open was by invitation only. So we were deprived of any sort of tin cup stories, you know, journeyman pros that somehow sneak in through the local and sectional qualifying and find themselves under the bright lights of a place like Shinnecock and Pebble Beach or Oakmont. And typically they'll, they'll hang up a couple 78s and then just hit the road. Well, Andy Pope is not one of those guys because Andy Pope made it through the U.S. Open qualifiers to get to the big show in 2015, 16, 17, and 19. Yes, he played in four U.S. Opens in the span of five years. While that is probably what he's best known for, and we do get into that quite a bit, we spoke about his 15-year professional career. We also talked about his days at Xavier, talked about the good breaks and the bad ones. And in this episode, you're going to learn about mindset, positive thinking, Determine. Oh, what the hell? Why am I stalling? You're about to listen to a. Here's all I need to know. You're about to listen to a guy that has qualified for four U.S. Opens. So let me get out of the way and get the guest in here. Andy, 
Thanks so much for joining me here at the back of the range. How are you? Happy New Year. Thanks for having me on, man. I'm doing just great. It's nice and sunny in Orlando, so glad to be out of the cold in Chicago. I, I can only imagine. Um, yeah, this is uh, this is the time of year where, you know, as I mean, I'm a native Floridian. I know you've been down in Florida for, for quite a few years, but this is the time of year where you get the great weather, but it's also the time of year where everyone's coming down to Florida and um, all these damn, you know, these these tourists are in our way of enjoying our, our normal Floridian life lifestyle. So how, how do you cope with that? I mean, it's pretty funny. You know, I mean, COVID has helped to uh, keep the volume down. Yes. But uh, I got to say, it is amazing how nice the weather is. I always say I wouldn't trade our terrible summer for the horrible winter and our oh, great yeah winters for the mediocre summers up north so it's uh yeah it's pretty neat down here it's definitely packed with people in the winter time trying to play i just had some friends in town from chicago and we were trying to get some tea times and it's um it is amazing how many people want to come down to florida right now well as someone like i said as a native floridian i, I love the weather i love the hot I don't, I don't really care what it is just yeah keep the hurricanes away and keep the you know i don't want to deal with any snow so uh don't think I need to worry about that too much, but um, glad you're on the podcast. We have just tons of things to talk about. Most people that probably know your name know you as the guy that just seems to qualify for U.S. Opens whenever the <laughs> hell he damn well feels like it. Um, that is not the entire scope of your professional career. You've been a, you've been a pro for about 15 years now after your uh, college career at Xavier. Um, we could take this in several different directions, but let's kind of give a baseline to listeners so that we just, you know, don't refer to you as the U.S. Open guy. Um, you, you, grew, you grew up in, uh, you know, Glen Ellen, Illinois. Talk to me a little bit about just getting into the game. When did golf become such a major part of your life? From, from the get-go, my, uh, my, my grandfather um, was actually president of Medina back in 82, 83. I was born in 84. Um, so I think they had joined Medina back in the fifties or sixties. So I would grow up at Medina, but my father wasn't a golfer. He was a landscaper. That was my mom's family. So I grew up playing golf at Medina, which was a dream come true for any kid. I've and heard of back, that place. I've heard of it. <laughs> I tell you before, before the 99 PJ when Tiger exploded golf back in the eighties and nineties, I mean, that place was something to be seen. And I was kind of the youngest kid in the group growing up out there. So, um, basically I was playing golf. I was playing all sorts of sports, but when I would get out to Medina, you know, again, I was the youngest. So I was six, seven, eight years old trying to hang out with 10, 12, 14 year old, 16. My brother was six years older than me and there was guys older than him. And so the only way to kind of keep up with these guys was to, you know, be able to hang on the golf course and, you know, next thing I know, by the time I'm eight, I'm 10, I'm shooting even pars and I'm moving up and I'm playing, you know, I was playing against 18 year olds and I'm 10 and, you know, I'm playing the same tee box. These guys are in high school and I'm out there as a sixth grader and fifth grader and I'm trying to beat these guys down. And, uh, it was just really, really cool growing up there. I mean, still have lots of friends from there that I talk to and it's, uh, it was a really neat experience, you know, and then in 99, once once Tiger came through and won, I mean, that place exploded. All of a sudden, golf kind of was really ramping up then, and it really has really exploded that place. And it's a really wonderful spot, but 
um yeah so i grew up playing you know there and just really was with trying to hang out with the older guys you know to try to fit in so i mean got tons of stories from you know losing my two front teeth from a guy crushing a golf cart into a tree and my head going into it to you know i remember falling off the back of a cart going down these crazy trails and my back's getting all patched up and it was um I mean, it was honestly a kid's dream come true. So I played every day, sun up to sundown when I was out there. And then, um, yeah, I was fortunate enough to get a scholarship to go to uh, Xavier in Cincinnati. So not to let me let me backtrack just a little bit, because you, you mentioned something about being really the youngest kid that's trying to keep up with your brother and with his friends. And, you know, I think everyone, gosh, if, you know, there's so little golf to watch in December. I think everyone was tuning into the PNC father son and they're seeing, you know, Tiger's son charlie with these you know perfectly custom fit golf clubs because you know of course you can do that now but i'm just thinking to myself you know you're you're 510 150 ish i guess that's is that pretty accurate right now yeah i'm, I'm a little heavier from from sitting yeah, it's around COVID, yeah. it's covid way we don't count that shit so but but as a kid <laughs> i'm thinking to myself okay you're six five you know five six years younger than everyone you're playing with and you're keeping up with them score wise how do you think that affected your your upbringing in the game, whether it's, you know, managing equipment that may not be perfectly fit for you and then also playing against kids that obviously hit it farther than you? When you look back and think about how you started, how do you think that, uh, you know, helped your game? Yeah, no, honestly, like some of those points are, are 100% on. I mean, there was times I can remember – I mean, I always played the Tommy Armour irons like every other kid. You know, yeah, 45s. Set of irons. They ate 45s, and sure enough, you know, I see the zero iron come into the pro shop, the heater. Uh-huh. It's like the John Daly driving iron, take 845, and I'm like, well, I have to have that. You know, and my parents are like, wait, what? You know, I'm coming home with a zero iron. I'm like, yeah, everyone try to hit this thing. I mean, I'm spending days and days trying to hit shots like that with crazy clubs. There was... I'll never forget, um, and it's something I'm actually transitioning to right now is the long driver. But when I was nine years old, John Avsek came from the senior tour to Medina as the club guy. And, you know, back then it wasn't as popular to get custom clubs. And so I spent all my time with him and he built me a 48 inch driver when I was nine years old. (laughs) And I can never forget hitting that thing. He passed away, unfortunately, I believe when I was 11 and it broke and I never used it ever again. And I, I'm not kidding. Uh, about two months ago with paying, I was working with and I'm going two drivers. I'm using a 47 and three quarters driver right now. Um, but the, growing up, I mean, it was one of those things, grab a club and make it work. And that's kind of how I've been even to right now. I mean, I don't tinker with clubs very much i was always in the impression well here's your five iron go make it work you know you'll you'll figure it out or your body will be able to figure it out so it's yeah we never had the you know the the custom everything we just kind of here's your brother your brother played with these 845s are yours now right and that's just what we had and it was great and you know when you have that mentality it's so funny when i look at kids now and guys now playing and everyone's tinkering and changing this and changing that. And I'm like, you should be able to change that just by moving, you know, your right finger up a quarter of an inch or move your right thumb over half an inch. If you want it to turn over instead of, you know, making manipulating the club. But, um, yeah, that, and then couple that with playing with, you know, the older guys, I, I mean, 
I'm a firm believer in, you know, your peers make you better and, you know, playing with better competition is going to make you better. And boy, I mean, playing with older guys that are hitting farther than you constantly, there's just nothing better than knowing, Hey, if I just get it to the hundred yard spot, I'm going to hit this thing inside of 10 feet. Maybe he's not going to hit a good chip or a pitch and just, it's almost, you know, you, you start learning the ways of poker and mental games and just weird stories like that. And then, you know, you fast forward 20 years later, here I am, I'm talking to guys like Dewey Tomko, who these guys bet, you know, astronomical amounts of money and they play, you know, he'll play anybody for a million dollars and you're picking his brain over what he's thinking. And he's, you know, he's the same thing. He wants to watch the putt die in the hole and, and see your face reaction, you know, as opposed to you just jamming it in. And it's just, uh, you know, growing up with guys that had always had hit it further than you, I think you kind of just understood you, you managed the game even faster because you had to look for ways to put yourself in the best position. Well, and, yeah, and, and like you're saying with this, you know, putting a 47 and three-quarter inch driver in your bag, you know, it's one thing if you want to gain distance, and, and this, boy, we can go down a real big rabbit hole with this, but it's one thing if you want to gain distance by, you know, getting in the gym, getting stronger, um, you know, maybe switching a ball or something like that, where it, it seems that, okay, you can, you know, you can make those changes. But for someone like you, that really is basically your hallmark of one of the hallmarks of your game is, is finding fairways. I'm guessing that this is not just about the distance, but now you have to figure out how to control that damn thing. You know, what's amazing is, I mean, credit to the guys that sent it to me, Dave Bray and T-Bill. I mean, it, it, at first it was a little bit like that. And after speaking, I was talking to Oppenheim about it. You know, it's almost a little bit of a challenge and it's so new that it's been really fun. I'm like, oh, I can't wait to get out there and play it again. I can't wait to try this thing out. Can't wait to see how she reacts. And I, there's part of me that I was going to, I'm going to play two drivers, but part of me wants to just play the one. I played it in Mexico and I played fine when I did the qualifying, but I, I, I do need two, but it, it definitely is. Yeah. Like it's a whole different swing. I mean, it added, feels like you're swinging slower, number one, and it adds about four to five miles an hour of club head speed. So all of a sudden you're, you're coming down. It feels like you're barely even swinging it. The numbers on it are saying it's going faster. So the timing of it is a little bit different, but it's on, it's trying to keep the ball down more than anything. And so far, I've it's been really good for me. So I'm excited to start up here in the next few weeks. I think we don't start till February, but uh, yeah, I'm excited to just try it out because you know, for a guy like myself, I fly at 275, 280. You know, if I can get it to that 290, 295, which is which this big one's going, it kind of does help because you know a lot of the holes when you're trying to cut these corners at 290 yards, if you get the right wind. You know, some of these guys I'm playing with on the corn fair, they're hitting three woods over this that corner. You know, I'm over there trying to figure out how to navigate it between the two bunkers. So um, it's definitely been something that, um, like I said, it, it's been actually really fun trying to go out there and, you know, be, you know, I took for granted how straight you could hit it with. And now when I pull out my driver, it feels like a toothpick and it's a baby three wood. And I, <laughs> I could never ever miss the fairway. So even if you're going to try it, I, I mean, used it. I would try it because when you come back to your real driver, it, it's amazing how easy it does feel. Huh. 
Okay, good point. Never yeah. never thought so of it I, that way. It's almost like the uh, the batter that has a donut on his bat and then takes it off, and all of a sudden it's it's the bat's lighter and it's it's easier to control. Honestly, it's it's got a little bit of that effect. I mean, it's like once you're out there with this new big driver that you're trying to hold on to and you're trying to navigate, then once you grab your normal club, you're thinking, well, this is a lot much easier. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. I mean, when I put the little driver down now, there's no doubt in my mind it's going down the middle and I'm going to be able to make solid contact. Yeah. You know, it's so it's because that's definitely one of the things with the longer driver trying to make the solid contact is where it's seems to be the the hardest thing so far. Well, I'm, I definitely want to talk a little bit about what you're doing now uh, as far as, you know, playing professionally. But before I do that, I just, I want to hit on a little bit with how you actually started your professional career you know, as we chatted about briefly, you know, played at, at Xavier, you know, you're a conference champion in 04, you know, team championship in 03 and 05. And, you know, when, when you think of Xavier um, and we're thinking of, you know, their spot in the, you know, college golf landscape, you know, they're obviously not an Oklahoma State or a Texas or a Stanford. So um, I know Kokrak is, is out of Xavier and, um, yep. and, and, you know, a lot of good players come through there. When did you kind of start thinking? I mean, obviously, as a kid, you want to play in the PGA Tour, and and a lot of kids have that dream. But when did that start becoming something viable and a reality in college, where you're like, okay, I'm going to make a run at this? You know, it was. It's kind of one of those things. Like, I just always wanted to play, and I just wanted to be able to go and play against the best guys in the world. Just see if you could hang. And it's, you know, when I when I was actually deciding between, I was looking at schools in the Big Ten and. I ended up choosing Xavier. Xavier was such a great decision because we had a great group of guys. I had a chance to play and, you know, just seeing some of the other guys that had graduated from Xavier and have some success, um, you know, and just being able to see that those guys were able to have some success on the nationwide tours before us. I just, it was always something that I just wanted to do. It didn't matter what I was doing. I just knew that I was going to go try to play on the PJ tour. I was going to go grind as hard as I could because I knew deep down that I, I did really want it enough. And I still do. I mean, I'm still excited for the opportunity and, and I've put myself in an okay spot there, but yeah, it was always something that I, I don't know. I've, I've always been so competitive in every sport and I just, you know, there's, there's something in there that I just, I want to be able to go play every week with the best guys in the world and see if I can put as much as I can into it. And you know, if it's good enough and it's just, it was always, I remember being in college my senior year and you know, everyone's getting very specific to what they're doing and you have your majors and at Xavier, you know, they really, they really try to set you up for the future and they're all going around the classroom. Oh, what's, what are you going to be doing when you graduate? And this guy, well, I have already a job with, P and G and I'm going to go do this. And the next guy, Oh, well I've got this lined up where I'm going to do this, you know? And you know, the, you know, the teacher's like, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm going out to California. I'm going to start caddying at this club. I'm going to be working there and trying to get on this mini tour here to get my way onto the PGA tour. And it was like, that was always what my idea was. And that's what I did. I followed miles Malay. Um, he was from California. I went out there to go play on the Spanos tour. Okay. And, uh, yeah, I left college. I moved out to Palm Springs, and I was caddying at the Hideaway. And uh, I played a couple mini tours out there. We all signed up for what was then called the U.S. Pro Tour, yep, I believe. Yep. And we paid our six thousand dollars, and we all got burned. 
And so I just caddied the whole season and came back that summer to my Chicago to see my parents and said, I'm going to go down to Orlando because the Hooters tour is down there. Everybody seems to be there and I'm going to go there. And so I went to Orlando and I haven't left since. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. No, it was, uh, it was a great move. You know, they, the Hooters tour back in the day was something I remember. I was telling the, some of these stories that, you know, when I moved here, it was 2008, the winter series Hooters, um, tournaments, there was 132 guys every week with a wait list. And, you know, that was four times or three times a month for four months. It was great. You know, you could rent a house with some guys and you could go play for the next, you know, we had 12 events, I believe, over four months. It was pretty neat. That was a time when those, I mean, the winter checks for those were, I mean, sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000. The winners were, um, the winter series was a little smaller, but the summer series for sure. Yeah. yeah. No, the summer series, I remember um, dating my wife. I finished, I think, tied for a second and I got 20000 that's a, um, that's a good, that's a good way to, to, to impress a lady when you're, when you're on a mini tour. Yeah, absolutely. I thought the same thing. And, you know, <laughs> here I am, we're married with kids, but it's like, yeah, the, the mini tours back in the day. And like, you know, I always, you know, one of the games that I like to play, especially when we're out playing is this Turkey game. And I mean, I learned it on the Hooters tour from Jeff Corr and Ted Potter, but these guys used to you know, they would play this turkey game and I'm like, well, what is it? You know? And it's like, well, if you make three birdies in a row, it's a turkey, just like bowling. Well, the next thing, I mean, I've been playing that ever since and it's, you know, it's just a good game to keep you motivated. And we play, play it a lot when we're here, but yeah, I mean, you learn, you, you see so much from just playing on different tours and watching different guys, how they do it. And it's just been, uh, it's been quite a journey so far, but I am hoping it hasn't come to an end quite yet. Oh, well, doesn't sound like it has. What, um, tell me about your first big check of your career as a professional. I'm sure, I'm sure you must remember the first big check that you looked down at like, oh my God, I'm rich. That would have been after I got in, I got onto the nationwide tour in 2012 and up to that point, you know, you had won some stuff, some, you know, some, some small checks, you know, 5,000 here and there, but I won like 20,000 in Mexico that my first year after I was in the last group for the BMW and I had a horrific finish the last three holes. And I just thought, Oh my God, I'm not going to, you know, I bogey the last three holes. I went from sixth to 25th. And I thought, man, like this is this is just ridiculous. Next thing I know, my wife's talking to me about, you know, how great I played and how positive I should be, and just, I mean, couldn't have been better timing and better words, and to hear it from somebody that you've been with. And I, I no joke, I got engaged the next day, and was like, this is the girl I want to be with the rest of my life. And then the next week in Mexico, I was kind of in a similar situation with four holes to go, three holes to go. I was going to lose. But I wasn't going to lose by many, and I was in, you know, sixth place, and I finished par par birdie, you know, and I, I think I finished tied for fourth or fifth, and I made twenty grand, and that was one of the first times where I was like, wow, all right, like that's twenty thousand dollars one week of work in Mexico, like that was, that was pretty awesome, oh, you know, man. and you know, so that was kind of. For me, that was like the first time I, I'd won a couple of uh, like Hooters um, winter series, you know, and gotten ten or fifteen thousand. But yeah, once I checked, got one for twenty thousand. Then you know, you get 
the U.S. Open in 2015. I think I finished close to last, but I'd made the cut, and I'm like, 25 grand for for 70th. Like, I can sign up for this all all year. <laughs> well, you you have made it look easy by getting into these U.S. Opens as if you just sign up for it, but there's a little more to it than that. Um, which which I'm sure you you know as well. Now you mentioned uh, before we talk about the U.S. Open, you mentioned. Um, you mentioned Ted Potter, you mentioned the Hooters and the Hooters tour. And I mean, for people that don't know the name Ted Potter, fair to say, probably the best player in the history of the Hooters tour. Is that a, I mean, he's got to be right up there. Yeah. What's his face? Uh, Chad Campbell. Oh yeah. That's I right. I believe was number one, but Ted, I mean, I, I don't know how long he played on it or how both of them played, but Ted was just absolutely dominant and i just i remember the first time i actually played with him we were playing this turkey game i'm with he's playing with jeff core it was one of my it was like my first year on the hooters and i knew i was gonna get beat but i had to see for myself what it was that these guys were doing you know i wanted to see what they were doing so special to get the ball in the hole and i just never forget i think it was the second hole it was a par five me and ted both hit it up there we both have birdie putts and the greens were kind of slick and I, I just remember looking at my putt and I'm, I'm looking at it and I'm like, all right, I'm going to play about, you know, two cups of break. And I hit this putt and it's kind of rolling and, you know, it doesn't go in. It's pretty soft and just kind of goes over the edge. And I mean, Ted gets up there and I mean, he's playing the edge of the hole. And I'm thinking there's no way this guy's about to hit this thing at the edge of the hole. And sure enough, I mean, he takes it back. It's almost like watching a pool player hit just kind of like a, and he just, pops this thing, hits it right edge, hits the back of the hole, bam, down. And I'm like, whoa. Yeah. You know, and instantly I just thought to myself, well, he wasn't scared about putting that thing by eight feet. He's he's not having those thoughts. He's thinking about just burying that thing. I'm like, okay. you know, And it was all day, every hole, all of a sudden. I'm like, okay, he puts it differently than I do. This is definitely interesting. And he putted it great. He hit it great. He was determined. I mean, it was just amazing. And when you're watching him swing it, you know, you're not thinking that he's going to go win the next week and then win on the PGA tour. You know, I'm watching from the outside, but once you're in there and I'm watching him, his whole demeanor, the way he's carrying himself, the way he knows how he's reading the putts, the way he's hitting them. He just, everything was, that was all his, he owned it. And it was incredible to watch, but I'm just sitting there like, wow, I couldn't believe you know, he's going to make the putt. I'm going to miss it low playing, you know, almost two cups of break. He's going to hit it right edge and make it. And, um, yeah, I mean, there's so many guys, you know, just where you hear stories of, you know, playing with Ted and I mean, just honestly an absolute awesome guy and just, I mean, impressive to see him do it because again, it's his own, you know, it's, he owns it. Yeah. No, I, I've heard the stories too. And I, it's kind of one of the things I love about golf is that, you know, yeah, you, you see the maybe some cookie cutter swings in the PGA Tour right now, and you see the the a lot of guys that look alike. But then there's also Ted Potters out there that just they'll find a way to get it done, and they do. So I mean, it's oh. it's kind of like Furyk. I mean, it just you look at Furyk on the range, you're thinking there's no way, and uh, he's Hall of Fame career. So yeah, I mean, I think a lot of I think a lot of kids and players and just people in general they fall into the you know, there's Tiger Woods. I'm going to go swing it like Tiger. Well, it's like, well, no, Tiger's going to swing it like Tiger because you know what? Guy's been working at it for, you know, X amount of years on the same thing on what he's doing, getting his body for that move. 
You know, it's like you don't have that move. You should swing it how you swing it, you know, unless it's something dramatic. So, yeah, it's always funny to see people just kind of try to, I guess, emulate some pros when, you know, they don't, you know, that's not, that's not you. You know, it was just, that's it, what makes golf, I guess, very unique and exciting. I mean, that's what makes it great, really. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned this turkey game. Now, I, I'm, it's interesting you bring that up because I wanted to ask you a little about playing money games. I mean, you guys on, whether you're on the PJ Tour or, you know, mini tours or, or Corn Ferry, whatever it is, you know, it's a little bit different than playing like a typical, you know, $10 NASA or a 555 or, or whatever you want to call it that the amateurs might play. Uh, I mean, I'm not necessarily asking for specific dollar amounts here, but how do you kind of set up games where you can replicate or somewhat replicate the level of pressure that you face during tournaments. Cause like I said, I'm, I'm guessing this standard, you know, Hey, let's, you know, let's, let's play this simple NASA. I'm guessing that doesn't do much for you. Yeah. I mean, and NASA is fine. You know, I've always been fine with that, but my, my big gripe with a NASA is, you know, you're not going to, you know, if you, if you had a bunker, bunkered it to six feet for par and I'm on your team, and I'm in there 10 feet for birdie. You know, all of a sudden your six foot par putt really doesn't mean much. You know, you could lean on another player, but the turkey game, you know, it's a, we always played it during the tournaments. It was an individual game where if you made three birdies in a row, you got 20 bucks from everybody in the game. If you made three bogeys in a row, you had to pay $20 to every single player in the game. Okay. Okay. So that was the one. And then sure enough, you would get some of the guys that say, well, that's unfair. I don't want to play the three bogey one. And it's like, well, if you're playing in the pro event right now and you're gonna, about to make three bogeys, you're you're getting your you're getting your shit kicked in. So yeah. you better sack up and make a par. So um, it was, you know, we always played it like that. You know, we always just played five dollar birdies, whatever it was. But you add up your number at the end, thousand dollars if you went bogey free for the whole tournament. Um, there was a few things on there, but those type of games where it, it makes you put it out. And honestly, the reason that I think the game is great. Um, is because it kind of emphasizes you to stay in attack mode and try to make as many birdies as you can, and especially string them together in a row. And you also get par fives as a bonus, par threes as a bonus, no bogeys as a bonus. So it's kind of a game where, you know, all of a sudden I'll, we'll play it in an actual tournament. You know, if I'm playing and I'll say Oppenheim, hey, let's play the turkey game, he says you're on. You know, all of a sudden I make three birdies in a row, I make two birdies in a row, and I'm coming to the hardest hole on the course. Oh, yeah. You know, now I'm like, oh, well, do I want to just, you know, hit this five iron out to the right? Or would I like to tell Oppenheim or whoever I'm playing, Jim Renner, you know, I hit a five iron, you know, in there 10 feet and made it for my turkey. And I'm like, well, let's go, you yeah. know, let's make turkey. And so um, that's definitely one that we'll actually do inside of the tournaments just to, you know, you you know where you're at. And I mean, the bogey freeze, obviously one that's great. I know a few guys um, out on the corn ferry, they play a, a bogey free game and a birdie free game. If you go birdie free, you owe everybody. And if you go bogey free, you get paid. Um, so there's a lot of good games like that. Gammon um, is a game that we like to play. And I, I think it's one of the better games. It's a little hard to explain, but basically it's a, you know, we would play three on three with a high ball, mid ball, low ball, but you could press each ball as you went and basically what it ends up doing is it, it puts an emphasis on every single putt. So even if you had six feet for birdie, you know, you're thinking you're in command. Well, the other team makes a 10-footer for birdie. Now they've been able to press 
you thought you were going to have the, you know, in a normal match, you got the winning putt from six feet. Now you've got the putt where if you don't make it, you're about to lose, you know, double or triple or quadruple or break even. Right. And so, and then it ends up doing that with the bad balls too. So all of a sudden guys having a bad hole next thing, you know, he's got six feet for bogey. He's like, does this thing even matter? It's like, Oh, well yeah, they made three pars and they've tripled the high ball oh. or, you know, they've made, you know, two pars and a bogey. They've tripled the high ball. So yeah, your six footer is for everything that, you know, the, the other two balls are obsolete. And it's like, wait, y'all said you're the guy making bogey. And you're like, wait a second, this is the most important putt on the hole. I'm putting for bogey. And it's like, well, yeah. So it's, it, it makes it so that, you know, it, it helps you to try to train yourself to um, think that take and take the value away from something. And I think that's kind of what we try to do. You know, if you, if you've ever seen an amateur golfer, have a three foot bogey putt compared to a three foot Eagle putt, you know, it's night and day. All of a sudden they're reading oh, yeah. the putt 10 times over. They're looking here. They're looking there. It's like you had three feet for bogey last hole. You just walked up there and damn near one handed it in the middle. Now you, now you're trying to find something that's not there. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's trying to trick your, your mind into essentially trying to take the value off. You know, they should be worth the same. Yeah, it's interesting. Your your games are, you know, that's actually this. I hope people listening are kind of learning the same thing I'm learning as you're talking about that is like, yeah, you guys are putting money up, but it's not just about the money. It's actually kind of shaping your mind and shaping your approach for tournament tournament play because, you know, you're you're chasing down Monday qualifiers. You're obviously, you know, successful at the U.S. Open local and sectional qualifying. And I could totally see that if you're, you know, if you're on the 15th hole and you're only two under, you know, hey, go get a turkey on 16th or 18th and maybe that five under gets you in. Absolutely. No, I can't tell you how many times something like that's happened or even, you know, you're, yeah, exactly. You're, you're having an okay day. You're just like, you know what? I can make a turkey right here. There's, you know, and you kind of plan your, your route and you've already game plan, but yeah, I mean, it's just, it's trying to do stuff like that to, you know, keep yourself, you know, because if, if you're out there just talking to yourself the whole time, you know, and you're just like, well, is four under going to get in? I'm not really sure. Or, well, I could get in. Well, maybe I shouldn't really go for this flag. It's like, no, why don't you just try to make the turkey, see what happens, you know, and, and, and try to go for what you're doing instead. Of, you know, you can't control what you don't know. So just go ahead and just play your ball. That's what you got. Well, you qualify for the 2015, 2016, 2017, and 2019 U.S. Opens. Was it local and sectional all four times? Uh, 16, since I, I made the cut in 15, so 16, they get they let you go to the sectional. Right, that's right. So um, then, but I did local 15, 17, and 19. So okay. three of the four, I went locals, and then obviously all four of them made it through the sectional. Of course. So you, you've played in, I mean, you know, you've played in many qualifiers, and, and I, you know, this is something that I definitely have to, got to get your information and your, your take on this. But, you know, we amateurs, like you said, they focus on the number and what they need to shoot. And I'm at three now. And, and am I okay? Um, before asking you how you've been so successful, which I think we've already figured out, um, at least to some part, but right. um, can you maybe share a story when you weren't as successful in a qualifier? And I don't, I don't mean you shooting 69 and someone, you know, boat races you with a 64, I'm talking about a time where you got in your own way that maybe was a, a learning experience. Oh, I mean, I'm sure there is a there's a ton. Um, 
trying to think of one just off the top of my head. I, I can tell you, well, I can tell you the worst one that I ever had um, was just, and it, you know, this is just another one where, you know, you just kind of learn to, to move on, but it, I couldn't, um, was my first year, I think it was 2008. It was 2008. I went up to do the uh, Greater Milwaukee Open and my brother was caddying for me and I shoot three under and it ends up being good enough for a four for two playoffs. So four of us go to the 10th hole, Joel Kreibel's in there. He makes bogey on the first hole. He's gone. I'm like, Oh my God, Joel Kreibel just lost. You know, I'm like, couldn't believe it. I'm 23 at the time. He was a guy that I had always seen his name everywhere. And so then it's the, we get to the second hole and it's me and Kyle Essler, who's a kid from Chicago area myself. And, um, Gosh, I'm drawing a blank on his name, Dean Pappas. And it might have been Brendan. No, it was Dean Pappas. And we get to the last, the second playoff hole. And, you know, Kyle's having a rough hole, and me and Dean are on the same line. And I put it up to about four feet. Dean asked me to move my coin. I move it. Dean putts. He taps in for par. He's in. Kyle goes up there, makes a 15 footer for bogey. So I go up there, I had already moved my coin back, and now I've got this four-footer straight up the hill to get into the Greater Milwaukee Open, the GMO. And right as I go through my progressions, I stand over the ball. Dean's caddy backs me off right as I'm about to hit it, yelling, whoa, 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 did you move your mark back? And I'm like, yeah, I did, thank you. You know, And all of a sudden in my head, I'm just like, holy cow. Yeah. can't believe what just happened. Like I'm all of a sudden, I, I just, I didn't know how to handle it. I'll remember. I just remember my heart going through my chest because he was like, whoa, whoa. And I was like, oh my God, what did I do? And he's like, right. hey, did you move your coin back? And I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, all right. And so at that point, I didn't know anything about trying to calm myself down or, you know, I've got my brother, Caddian, who's a landscaper, you know, he's, you know, we're not talking about resetting and going through our motions and do it again. I'm like, Oh, okay. Like, sounds good. Heart's going through my chest. I get up there. I horseshoe the putt and, and me and Kyle end up going nine more holes and he beats me on the ninth hole. And I just remember driving back, you know, talking to my brother and I'm like, Oh my gosh, like, you know, can you, I'm like, you know, I start going just through some crazy rabbit holes, you know, and he just, we started talking about it more and more. And I just said to him, I said, you know, I, I know I, that guy didn't do anything wrong. He was trying to make sure I didn't do anything, but boy, I'm like, I, I was never nervous all day. And I was like, then all of a sudden my heart started going through my chest. I'm like, I didn't know how to stop it. <laughs> and it was so, and that was one of the first times where I started learning about breathing and trying to control your central nervous system and, you know, just all of a sudden, you know, when you feel something like that or that anxiety happens, like take a moment, you know, step back. And that's why you start to understand, well, that's why these guys have these processes. That's why they go through their, let's go right through your check marks again, you know, whatever, like pick your spot, go behind it, take your practice strokes, whatever it is. So I, that's when I really started to learn about the routine and, you know, having a process. And, you know, now that I'm, I've been talking with skip kendall the last few years he's a friend of mine who's now teaching got an awesome gig at his academy and you know just talking to him now about teach or breathing it's amazing how much goes into that but that was definitely one of the first times where i had been nervous and i didn't i didn't know what to do you know i was like oh okay and then i just kind of got up there all quick didn't know what was going on just hit this putt and you know you look i looked back on it i'm like gosh if i could have just 
sat back and, you know, just taking a deep breath for a second, but I, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, I'm listening to that story. And as you were going, I was like, please, God, tell me this is not a fact that he that he forgot to move the coin back. And I thought that was going to be the worst part. But no, that wasn't the worst part. Um, that, no. Wow. Um, I don't think I've ever heard anything like that, but that completely makes sense. So you've obviously figured out a way to calm yourself down in these situations. And I mean, oh, man, I, I just I can't even think of anything worse than that. Yeah, no, and I mean, there's there's just stuff, you know. It's it's amazing, some especially when you're doing some of the Monday qualifying. I mean, it, it's difficult because you know it's, most of the time the qualifiers aren't set up hard enough, and I I just mean that in the sense that they're not set up hard enough to, you know, the pins. Sometimes they'll just put them all in kind of like the middle of the green. Well, that kind of gives a chance for everyone to get to the pin. If you're in the woods, you got a chance to get to the middle of the green. If you're in the bunker, you get, you know, so it takes kind of the, a little bit away from the guys that are hitting it into the fairway. So, you know, when you go into some of these Monday qualifiers, you know, the mentality is, you know, you've got to play well or, you know, you don't have any chance and it's, it, you, maybe you take on more risk and maybe it's something that I do. I know every time I start talking about them, I always try to think if that's what I'm doing in real tournaments, but Maybe I'm taking on more risk when I'm playing in Monday qualifiers because, you know, if I if I do really mess it up, I just know, okay, well, whatever, it's it's kind of over. But, you know, when it's when you're playing in a real tournament, you know, you really don't want to mess up because, you know, it's gonna keep on going. You still yeah. gotta add that you gotta take that on. So yeah, I think maybe I, I take more risks in the qualifiers and you know, i I guess maybe I've had more success by taking more risks than I normally would on a course, but I, f- I sure don't feel like I play different. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I'm just thinking about it. Like a 70 is fan- is is really, you know, for the most part, it's 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 good enough to get you through to an- to another round, but not in a qualifier. Right, and I mean, again, a lot of it has to do with course setup. That's why you'll see, you know, the the, the guys that are qualifying for the Corn Fairy this year, they're going to be shooting 64s and 63s. Yeah, but then they get in the tournament, you know, if one of them shoots 68 or 69, that'd be a good score. And 66 is winning the tournament. So you just see that the, you know, unfortunately the quality of the courses isn't what the quality of the tournament is, I, I guess I would say. And right. so it, 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 it is a different game, but I mean, yeah, it's just the, the mindset in a qualifier. And it, but you know what? I, and I've always said this, it's kind of one of those things where, I, I always said that Tiger Woods was so great because everybody there was rooting for him and really wanted him to be great. And so it just, it kept on, it kept on, um, you know, reiterating to himself that like, yeah, these people all think I'm great where it's like, I've had times now where, you know, I'll go to a qualifier, you know, and sure guys are saying stuff like that. And when I hear someone say, Oh my God, Andy, you're here. Like you're obviously going to qualify. You shot, you know, 64, two weeks ago and made it. I'm just like, wow, all right, yeah, I am. And it's it's stuff like that where I'm like, I'm taking that vote of confidence because, you know what, some of these other players are actually thinking that I'm going to make it. Oh, yeah. Well, so, if, they're th- and if they're thinking you're going to make it, they're not thinking they're going to make it. Exactly. And so it's so always it's like that old Nicholas thing where someone's in the locker room complaining about the rough or the, the, the whatever. And he's like, all right, check that guy off. He ain't going to make it. So Right. No, it's definitely one of those things. So it's, you know, it's definitely, it's about confidence and it's, it's, you know, I just, I, I remember, I remember the first time I qualified was in, um, Missouri, Springfield, Missouri for the nationwide event. I was practicing it that summer. 
the locker room guy, Danny Medina. I mean, the guy was changing my diapers my whole life and cutting my hair. I remember right before I left for that one, he just told me, hey, Cabron, you go play your game. Nobody else's game, you go play your game. I went down there. I shot 65, first time Monday qualifying in anything. Didn't call my parents, didn't call my grandparents. Called Medina, said, let me have the locker room. Let me talk to Danny Medina. He says, hello, and I just say, I did it, man. I played my game. And he says, I told you, you play your game. And I'm like, unbelievable, you know, and it's just, it's stuff like that where, you know, just believing in yourself, it's amazing how much confidence can do for you in, in the game of golf. I've just, you've never seen the highs and lows in any other sport, I don't think, from a player's standpoint, when one guy can't miss, you know, he's just making, he's making, he's making, and three weeks later, all of a sudden he can't hit the backside. You know, it's like, it's amazing how much confidence or, you know, just the mental game can play. And in golf, it really gets, I mean, it's exemplified big time. Four U.S. Opens, Chambers Bay where Spieth wins, 16 where DJ wins, 17, you got Brooks at Aaron Hills, and then you got Woodland at Pebble. Any one of those four U.S. Opens, and I'm, I'm thinking I know the answer to this, but was there any of those U.S. Opens where you felt that the course and the competition was too big for you? You know, no, no. I mean, Chambers Bay, I, I still to this day remember driving out over Chambers Bay and seeing all the tents, and we were like, holy cow. You know, and you come down over this big look, and we were – but it was it was a holy cow. We were so excited to just get in there, and it was, it was one of those things where – you know, you see all the stuff going around and you're kind of looking like, wow, listen, this. But once you got inside the ropes, then it was like, okay, we're in our safe zone. Right. You know, and so it was like, once you got inside the ropes, it's like, all right, now that we've gotten away from all those people, hey, we're inside the ropes. Like, we get to go back to what it is we know. And so, no, Chambers Bay was good. I played well there. Um, Oakmont was awesome. That place is just the best. Um, I had such a great time there, even though I didn't play, I played fine. I just got, you know, caught up in Oakmont and I made five bogeys in a row on the back. And, you know, I think I shot five or six over for that week and it was easy to do, but it was, um, no, all of them were just awesome. Great venues to be a part of the USJ does such a great job with it too. And honestly, the courses were, courses are as good as they get. I mean, Pebble beach, you know, I'd always heard so many great things about Pebble beach and, I can see why people had so many great things to say about Pebble Beach. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, I honestly, out of all of them, um, I would say I, you know, Oakmont was definitely. I mean, it's tough to top Oakmont, but for my game personally, um, Pebble and Oakmont were great. The other two were, they were great as well. But it was hard. I was playing out of the rough in Aaron Hills, and you you couldn't play out of the no. rough on a seventy four hundred yard course. So no, or whatever it was. Now you're obviously you you have I'm guessing you have partial status on Corn Ferry is that right? Yeah, I got a full status on Corn Ferry full last status. year and this year. So full card, I got I think I made twelve of the twenty four cuts or ten of the twenty two. I'm not sure, but I think I was ninety. I don't know ninety nine, ninety two. Okay, not somewhere in the nineties right now. Okay, so I guess my question is, you know, you you've had these U.S. Open experiences, and I guess looking back, you learn a lot from them. But it's not like this is it's not like you're 21 years old that that you know got into a tour event or, or qualified for for a U.S. Am for the first time. 
you know, you've had a lot of learning experiences in your 15-year professional career. How do you keep yourself open to consistently learning without kind of getting into the mindset of like, all right, I'm done learning all these like lessons. I want to be out on tour, damn it. I know, honestly, like that's kind of, it's kind of where I'm at, but okay. I, I was telling somebody the other day, I was like, it, it's one of these things. And I, I've talked to so many guys, especially peers and guys that I know that know me where it's like, when I told that story of the GMO, if I had qualified for the GMO, I would have gotten into that tournament in 2008 or nine. I would have gone and shot 77, 77. Right. I know I would have, you know, and if the same guy myself qualified for that tournament right now, my chances of shooting anything higher than 73 would be, you know, I wouldn't be shooting anything higher than 73. I'm ready to go. So it has, I mean, you know, I, I've been able to learn and really just hone and develop my own skills. But yeah, like you're saying, like, I remember in 2015, I played Sea Island, made the cut. I played Chambers Bay, make the cut. I only got 11 starts on the nationwide that year, and I finished 108th. And so I was playing awesome. And next thing I know, I don't make it through Q school. I'm coming off two for two on PGA cuts, and I've got nowhere to play. And I'm like, wait, what is happening? Here we are in 2016. I feel like I'm 32 years old. I'm at the peak of my game. And I've got nowhere to kind of showcase it and show people. And, you know, I just, I did the Monday qualifiers and I just grinded and, you know, I started trying to make websites with a friend of mine and we were doing all sorts of just random things. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I can say that at this point, I'm so much well more rounded as a player and everything that I have gone through, I feel like I can use that all, but yeah, I mean, I'm ready to use that all and, and kind of finish it off. So I'm hoping, you know, this year I can be top 75 by the end of this corn fairy year, if not top 25, but, you know, obviously looking at it realistically, I mean, a win would get me in the top 25 right now, but you'd still have to have a very solid season. I mean, we've been talking about it. This is going to be the best top 25 to come out of the oh, yeah. corn fairy than any other year, because it's going to be over 47 events or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so you know, realistically, you know, obviously I would love to win, but you know, I mean, I, I want to guarantee myself into that top 75 at the end of the season. And, you know, in those playoffs, I've seen anything can happen. You know, I mean, I, I've seen some wild things through those playoffs. I think they're great um, since they took away the cards from the Q school, but I, I just, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that, yeah, using everything I've learned where that's the ups and downs and, just, you know, it's the money game here, the money game there. If I can just draw on those experiences, you know, when the time needs them, I'm hoping I, I'm hoping after 15 years of trying this, it'll, uh, it'll finally pay off. Yeah. Well, I mean, we haven't even gotten into to talking about, you know, all the time and money and expenses and hotels and, and, you know, I mean, it sounds like this is basically what you're destined to do. Like, I can't imagine you, ever, you know, I mean, how do you still find the desire to put in another hour of, of, you know, working on putting drills or getting in the gym at 6am? I mean, yeah, this, yeah. I mean, have you ever, I mean, not to say, are you, or, you know, how do you kind of keep that going? You know, honestly, like it's seeing guys around you that you've been doing it with. I mean, and you know, you just being with the guys that you're normally with, I mean, 
the guys from the Hooters tour. I mean, I was hanging out with Jim Renner. I was hanging out with Oppenheim, you know, all these guys. And, you know, Rob's still playing. He's on the PGA. He's grinding as hard as he can. You know, see Jim finishing in second at Pebble a couple of years ago. I mean, it's, you know, it's the guys that you're with. And honestly, I mean, there's there's just something about golf where it's it's not the same every single time you play it, whether it's the conditions or whether it's, you know, what, whatever. Anything can change. You're never going to go into a golf course and have the exact same thing as you did the day before. So I just think that the challenge it presents is enough on itself where like I am excited to go take on a golf course every time, you know, and it's how am I going to beat this golf course? It's a game. I love it. I love, you know, if I love, you know, if we're just sitting there, I want to, I want to bet you on whatever it is, you know, watching ants go across the road or, or anything, you know, and it's just the, the feeling of getting to a golf course and, you know, kind of breaking it down from, you know, where are we going to attack this thing? Where are we going to come in? You know, how are we going to make these birdies? You know, how are we going to tell stories of, you know, I made birdie from over here. It's just, I mean, the, the game is so unique that it's pretty funny. I mean, every day I'm excited to go play. So I, I want to go hit balls right now just by listening to you, but uh, right. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's just, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where I'm, I, I definitely know I'm not done yet and I haven't, I haven't been able to showcase, you know, my skills, I feel like, to everybody. And and I'm I'm excited to to get that day, honestly. Well, that's awesome. Um well Andy, I appreciate you coming on, man. I, I like I just said, I I'm pretty I, I mean you get I think you get anyone excited to pick up a club and go uh go hit some shots. So um let's uh, let's definitely keep in touch and let's let's kind of follow along in, in your path on the Corn Ferry Tour this year. Hope you get that win because that means we got to get you back on the podcast. So um, thanks for stopping by the back of the range and, and all the best to you in 2021. Thanks, Ben. I really, really appreciate it. And uh, good luck to you as well. And uh, yeah, looking forward to a good 2021. So we'll talk to you uh, after the first W. And there you have it. Special thanks to Andy Pope for joining me on this episode here at the back of the range. Don't forget, follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Everything you need to know about this podcast. You want to get some merch? You want to send in a request for a future guest? Do it all at the website, thebackoftherange.com. Enjoy the rest of the week. We'll see you next time here at the Back of the Range.